Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And welcome to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. Please visit womenover70.com and consider joining Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund, so we may continue to inspire women to age with curiosity, courage, and creativity. Members enjoy monthly programming and probing discussions. We hope to see you there. And today we're delighted to be talking with Diane Greenwood, age 81, from Portland, Oregon. She's a family therapist who specializes in issues around alcoholism. Now, Diane began writing seriously in the early 1970s, and her upbringing in Western South Dakota is just for memorable essays, such as those published in the online magazine, The Big Smoke. Mm -hmm. As a re-entry college student, Diane focused on poetry in both undergraduate and graduate studies. She taught for several years at a junior college and then returned to graduate school to become a family therapist, a profession she says she knew would carry her into her 80s. <laughs> Diane's debut novel, About the Carlton Sisters, here it is, began as a draft almost 25 years ago and was published this spring of 2023. So Diane, welcome to Women Over 70. You know, I, I really enjoyed reading your book about the Carlton sisters and um, as well as several of your essays in The Big Smoke. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's just, it's my honor to be here today and to talk with you um, about what that journey has been like. Yes. So why don't we start? Uh, let's begin at the beginning. Okay. As a writer and just briefly share some of that early history. Okay. I think it really started when I was um, 14. I wrote my first poem. And of course, it was a love poem to a young boy. And um, what I remember about that experience is how exhilarating it was to be able to put emotion into words. And I think that carried with me uh, through life circumstances um, until I re-entered college at San Francisco State in the early 70s and uh, majored in poetry writing, um, had some significant teachers. One, my favorite teacher and the hardest was a man named Stan Rice, who happened to be married to Anne Rice. And she was at that point in the throes of writing Interview to a Vampire. It probably doesn't sound like much, but the fact that one of my contemporaries had written a novel and had launched that novel into the larger world so well, you know, I was the, the arrogance of a mid-30-year-old woman, and I said, I should be able to do that too. But um, so I, I probably wrote three or four trainer novels. That's what we call them now. And um, it wasn't until I was working in a psychiatric hospital in San Diego in the 90s that I began to take some coursework through uh, University of California at San Diego with a woman named Kate Braverman who was from LA and definitely a Los Angeles writer. 
um, she invited me to her private workshop. I'd never done anything like that before. I'd been kind of writing in the closet for a number of years without showing my work. And unfortunately, or fortunately, she left town about nine months after I started the workshop. But in the course of that workshop, I met one of her other students, a woman named Janet Fitch. And Janet Fitch also lived in L.A. So um, Janet put together a workshop. There were about a half a dozen of us. We met in her home. And every other Saturday, I would commute from San Diego to L.A., to her home. And um, But there's a little backstory. Before that, I, I, I had been writing short stories, which is a whole different other art form. Um, and I had taken one of my short stories to a contemporary of Janet's, a man named Donald Raleigh, who is unfortunately long gone now. And anyhow, he said, Diane, this isn't a short story. This is a novel. And with Janet's help, um, that novel began to take form. Diane, let me just interrupt for a moment. Just remind our listeners who Janet Fitch is, what she's known for. Janet Fitch is a Los Angeles writer who wrote a novel titled The White White Oleander. White Oleander. And it was made into a film in the early 2000s. I think Michelle Pfeiffer had the leading role. And um, I was sitting in her workshop the week that she received the call from Oprah. And Oprah invited her onto her national broadcast. So for a writer, that is almost instant fame. And, um, and so it proved for Janet. Um, it did not change who Janet was. She was a, and is, continues to be a wonderful teacher um, who is very devoted to uh, writing stories based on character. She's also very wonderful about details, about description. Her own novels um, over the last decade, she has published two novels that are Russian sagas. The first one is The Revolution of Marina M. These novels are very long, but her characters are as memorable to me as some of the characters in War and Peace. But Janet encouraged me. She thought the novel was close to finished. After about two years, I left my job at the hospital and returned to Oregon, where I had a home in Cannon Beach. And the idea was I would stay for two years, I would sell the home, and return to San Diego. That was 22 years ago. I'm still here. And uh, on a visit Janet made to Oregon in the summer of 2002, she encouraged me to work with a Portland writer whose name is Tom Spanbauer. And Tom 
had created a group called the Dangerous Writers. Now, I must admit, the title really intrigued me. He was a very exacting teacher and uh, would call me on the carpet for what he called purple language. Lang language that veered too much into romanticism, to nostalgia, to melancholy. And what I learned from Tom was how to take risks with characters. And because you have read the novel, Catherine, you know that the novel isn't about the everyday nice women that we were taught to be growing up in the 40s and 50s. The novel is, to me, about real women with real-life problems. And, um, and he mentored that novel for a very long time. And then um, I began to go in some different directions, began to write an immigrant novel based on my maternal grandmother's life. And then that had a sequel to it. It was a big project. But I always came back. The sisters would not let me go. <laughs> they just That's insisted that I had to find a way to give them voice in the world. So may I, I'm, I'm, uh, I was so taken with some of your essays in The Big Smoke, especially the one where you wrote about being, being uh, raised in the, you grew up in the basement of the county courthouse when your bedroom was right next to the jail. And it's just, I mean, your, your whole, that upbringing seems to be so extraordinary. And I'm just wondering, curious about how that has influenced some of your writing and your characters that you've chosen to write about, or if that's, it has? That's a really good question because, you know, as you've already said, I've worked for well over 30 years in the field of addiction. And one of the things when I remember back to that time, I was seven years old when we lived in the basement of the courthouse and the jail was right on the other side. And I think in that essay, I even talk about the fact that there was a there was a foot square um, opening between my bedroom, or I should say my sibling's bedroom, into the jail through which my mother passed their meals and accepted their dirty dishes. <laughs> but um, I could hear the men's voices late into the night. And then, of course, what I write about in the essay is the old um, native chief who sang his dying song, really, in that jail. You can see that still affects me. I'm sure. But what that did is it, um, I was a very observant child. I asked way too many questions. And what that did was um, help me feel an affinity with people who are, are less than, who are seen in our culture as less than, or who struggle 
against the odds, who never quite make it into the middle class, who are always living in a kind of the poverty mind. Is, is this why you became a, a therapist? Did that have influence you in any way? I think it has a lot to do with it. You know, my own family history. Um, I grew up in a difficult family uh, where, God bless him, my dad had a terrible problem with alcohol. And, of course, that came down the family line. I had my own struggles with it. But um, working so long, particularly with female alcoholics, in small groups and in treatment centers, um, I see how they have struggled um, just to keep their lives going in the lives of their children. Um, and of course, you can't look at the evening news. I always watch PBS without seeing this whole other world played out on the TV screen. Anyhow, my work, I think, made me super sensitive. I started out in Jungian psychology, which tends to be fairly intellectual, but I had years of therapy and analysis with Jungians. So what I began to really appreciate was the presence of, of what they call archetypes. In other words, these aspects of ourselves that live inside us. So when people ask me if it was hard to write the Carlton sisters, I have to say they were there all along. But the task of writing characters who aren't necessarily likable is sometimes daunting. And so when someone like you, Catherine, says, reads the book and says, oh, I, I really like this book. I mean, it's, it's almost like I have no expectations, really, that people are going to like this book. The characters, the three sisters, none of them are all that likable, as you say. They're quite flawed and each in their unique ways. And yet, as a reader, I became very fond of them. And I was rooting for them. That's wonderful. <laughs> that is the trick, you know. <laughs> I remember um, one of my great heroes is Elizabeth um, Stroud. Yeah. And her book, Olive Kittredge, uh, was such a breakthrough in women's literature, I think, in our modern era. I mean, there have been others. I think of Virginia Woolf um, as, and her characters, you know. But working with Tom Spanbauer and the Dangerous Writers helped me feel like it was really okay to write edgy characters. And they also helped me learn how to get my characters in trouble. A lot of trouble. Um, I'm currently working on a novel right now about an older couple. <clears throat> I'm trying to deal with death and dying and inheritances and, and um, uh, adult children 
who have different ideas about how you should live your life after a spouse dies. And I had such delight the last two days getting this protagonist in just a peck of trouble. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe I have a very droll sense of humor. I was accused of that once by the poet Kathleen Frazier, who said I had a droll sense of humor. But um, to me, this is life. Life isn't what I grew up reading in the romance novels and, and you know, that I started with. Life really first came to me through, through Pearl Buck's novels oh. about China, which I started reading when I was about 14 years old, 13 or 14. I was so impressed with her stories. And um, so many of these characters were peasants. That was a long answer. <laughs> her novels were wonderful. They really were. I felt the same way about Pearl Buck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you write about, you you really write a lot about the female characters, as you said, who are struggling to find their identity and or their agency in one way or another. Um, and so why is it as most of your writing about it as strong female characters or are you and who are you writing for? Who's your most ah. intended audience? I'll answer the first part of the question. You know, I, I grew up in my family of origin. I had a wonderful mother, incredible mother. I don't know how she did it. She had five children. She was married to a somewhat unstable person until he got into his mid-30s. And um, money was always an issue. As a young teenager, I secretly wanted her to leave him. Mm -hmm. And I also understood she didn't have any options. She didn't have an education. She didn't have a profession. How was she going to feed five children? And she was a very pragmatic, practical German woman who looked at these things very realistically. And she was a master of making lemonade out of lemons. But I, what I learned from her, I can remember at 16, making the decision that I would find a way in my life to never be solely dependent on a man for my livelihood. And that has been a driving force. So when I landed in San Francisco as a single mom in my tw 20s, if the women's movement was just heating up. So on one hand, I'm reading Helen Gurley Brown. On the other hand, I'm reading Betty Friedan. <laughs> and um, it was such an affirmation of that 16-year-old decision. And I kept trying to go to college and kept trying to go to college. And it wasn't until I was in my second marriage wonderful, wonderful man. And we lived in San Francisco and California colleges at that time were always fairly inexpensive. Mm 
my children were old enough, they were in school, and I was finally free to attend school. The novels, the audience, when I think of my ideal audience, I think of a woman in her mid-40s and beyond who has learned or is trying to learn how to make her way in the world, who may have just entered her professional life and be kind of a youngster at it. I knew several women friends who didn't get started because of having children early in life, mm -hmm. who finally became a bank manager at 42 or 45. This was a pinnacle of success. And so a women who have in some ways had to really focus to try to achieve some modicum of independence and success is really my target audience. I, I have a wonderful daughter-in-law named Linnea who is in, she's now in her mid-50s. She has worked for the same company since she was 19, hmm. where she started as a receptionist. And she's now a vice president in the company. It can happen. It can happen. And, um, you know, I feel like in some ways it happened for me. And um, the, the late writing has just been a consequence of a number of circumstances. It, it, the late publishing. Late publishing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and you're continue to work as a therapist, is that right? I do, I do. Because of the pandemic, I work exclusively on Zoom, and um, I work mostly with women sixty and older who are struggling with late life problems, mm. um, either with their spouses, their adult children, aging, disease. You know, where do we go from here? And um, I ended up gathering them into a group about five years ago. And so it's become, they have their now built-in support system. And it's become very meaningful, I think, for all of them. So do many of the issues stem from or influenced by um, addictions? Or is, is that just one of many issues? I think it's just one of many issues. Sometimes um, it's, you know, fueled by having other forms of, of mental illness, you know, depression, anxiety, um, either in themselves or in a partner. The big main issue that we're dealing right now with in the group is something that's newly called uh, narcissistic abuse. When you have are partnered with someone who is so self-involved that they have a hard time having empathy or compassion for where you are in your journey. And I, I've been really kind of stunned that that you know the clinicians have come up with a term for this. 
um, where often the wife is blamed, is given, is treated like a second-class citizen. So as you can see, my mission for helping women find agency goes on and on mm -hmm. uh, in both venues. That's not a term that I've ever heard. Narcissistic abuse, did you say? Yes. Yes. Can, yeah. can you just tell us a little bit about that, what it, what it means further? Well, extreme narcissism, we, we had... We've had a, an example of that in politics. Um, our former president, for better or worse, um, is entirely diagnosable as a narcissist. And what that means is basically you are the center of the universe and anybody who has contact with you simply orbits, orbits around you like planets orbiting around the sun. And one of the outstanding features is you're never wrong. You never make a mistake. You will go after what you want, no matter what the cost is. And so what ends up happening is something called they call gaslighting which is this business of blaming and condemning those around you for not, um, what is the word I want? Enhancing your place at the center of the universe. They don't make mistakes. People don't disagree with them. They're always right. You know, we all have some narcissism in us it's natural but i think when we move into the areas where we lack compassion we lack empathy um you know sociopaths are notorious for having no remorse about anything they do hmm. i don't know does that answer your question yes Gail? thank you for expounding on that mm -hmm. Yeah. So Diane, you mentioned that you have you were you're working on you have other books in the works. I do. Tell us about those and when can we look forward to them? Well, the book that's closest is um is the immigrant story, which I have titled uh Forever Blackbirds. And it's a story about a family of German immigrants living in Russia and farming the pale. They lived in that part of Russia that we now call the Ukraine. And they lived fairly close to Odessa. And in the early 1900s, as the Cossacks and the Bolsheviks came into power, uh, this family, who had been fairly wealthy farm and landowners, uh, decided quite suddenly to emigrate to America. So it's a story that actually begins in the middle of World War II when my protagonist, who immigrated as a 14-year-old girl, is now in her mid-40s. And the story is told in alternating timelines. So 
The main story going forward is we're in the middle of World War II and her family is in service or the women are home with the children. And in Little Eclipses, we see the immigrant story of who she was and how she got to where she is today. The whole novel takes place in central North Dakota, which is not a place anybody usually goes, <laughs> but it was where my maternal grandmother lived and where she told me her stories about Russia. Mm. And um, again, someone dear to my heart um, who died prematurely. Um, and um, when she was 63, my own mother died at 60. So um, it's been a pure pleasure writing her story in a fiction form. I've taken lots of liberties, but I have included, you know, what this country was like and that death was at the doorstep all the time for these people. So it has a sequel that's contemporary. Uh, Forever Blackbirds is slated to come out next spring. Um, and that will come out through Traveler's Moon Press. And um, the sequel will follow close after. They're very much finished novels. And then I'm finishing up this wonderful, this novel I've been in love with for about 10 years called Bert and Eileen. And it's a contemporary story, takes place in the mid 90s. So I consider that contemporary. It's my first Portland novel. And the protagonist is Eileen. And it's really also a story about friendship with women mm -hmm. and how we support each other. Well, I'm I'm so eager for these to come out to read, able to read these too. Just before we close, Diane, we we like to ask um, our guests, how do you think about your own aging process? Mm. If you do, I do. I think about it every day. I feel very fortunate uh, because my mother was aging so rapidly when I was a girl. Um, at 35, I began to exercise. I gave up smoking. I began to run. I have been a walker for the last 40 years. And then, of course, I gave up alcohol in my mid-40s. Um, so what I notice is we all age differently. And so much depends on our lifestyle. Some depends on our genetics, but I think also a lot of it depends on how we manage to keep passion alive. And when I talk about passion, I mean our passion for our own lives. Um, writing, I think, has kept my brain nimble. Um, you know, I'm feeling my 81 years in many ways. But I feel so excited about what's ahead. I know many women my age or younger 
who are not having the same experience. And I try to be very compassionate about that. Um, so and then my motto, the title of my newsletter is, It's Never Too Late. That's good. And my motto is, keep going. <laughs> you sound like Gail. <laughs> I love it then, Gail. Yes, we have that in common. <laughs> well, this, I'm sorry. Bring it on is what I say. Okay, bring it on is good. This has been delightful, really. Diane, thank you. We could let's we could talk with you for a long time. This is fascinating, and we thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you both, Catherine and Gail. It's really been my pleasure. You're very welcome. And listeners, thank you for your loyalty. Because of you, our numbers are growing all across the country and overseas. And this is a good thing. Still, we need more subscribers and reviews on Apple Play and YouTube. So support women over 70 and let your voice be heard. Help us change the conversation about women aging. Ah, lovely.